It's been a good series through Jonah, and I appreciate the different emails and calls about the way God has used his scripture and the word to convict us and bring us to points of change. With that in mind, take your Bibles and find Jonah chapter 2. We are actually at the very end of this chapter, and we're talking about the road back. And sometimes the road back uh, feels like a turtle on a fence post. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like a turtle on a fence post? Where your primary thought is, uh, I didn't get here by myself. you ever felt that way? And you may, you may think that's a predicament. But I would beg to differ. I tend to think it may be a place of honor. That God would put us in a place that we could never get to on our own. We had nothing to do with it. We didn't necessarily ask for this or even, um, you know, manipulate things to get here. We just happened to be here. That could actually be an honoring place. And I think in Jonah's life, that's exactly what it was. He was like a turtle on a fence post. He was in a place of honor. I want to show you what that is in a minute, so just hang with me. To get there, let me review with, with you briefly Jonah chapter 2, can I? Remember, there's, we're looking at this road back. How does God get us to places of honor, to where we're obeying Him? This road back to God is filled with at least three elements. They're not always in this sequence, but we have noticed these elements in this chapter. God does hear us. He humbles us and He honors us. And we all love the honoring part, don't we? We love to be on that fence post where God has put us somewhere. We had nothing to do with it. We didn't get there by ourselves. Like, God, this is awesome. A lot of times we don't like the humbling part, though, do we? But can I say to you what we said last week, that the doorway to honor is labeled with humility. And there is no honor without humility. Now, I've been thinking about that this week, because if you recall, I I made this statement that humility is is really not an option. It's a non-negotiable part of the road back. Are you with me? The question is not, will you get it? The question is, how do you want it? Are you with me? And the Bible seems to teach a couple of ways to pursue humility. We can pursue it ourselves. He says in James, humble yourself before the Lord. Or we can let God humble us. Just look at Jonah. So I got to thinking, I would much rather have a self-dose of humility. Is that okay to say? I mean, I would much rather humble myself. So what does that mean? How does that look to humble yourself? And I got to thinking about the book we're studying in Jonah's life. And I think I've discovered somewhat of a pretty basic understanding of what it means to humble yourself. Listen very carefully. If you really want to make sure that you get to a place of honor, instead of necessarily having God dole it out to you in a humbling way, but you want to uh, do it yourself, I don't mean that in a bad way, do it yourself, but if you want to humble yourself, watch this. I think the key to, to humbling yourself is just to obey quickly. In fact, I think you could use these terms synonymously. Humbling yourself is just finding a posture of obedience quickly. I mean, if you're a parent, you know what this is like. If your kid responds to you, sure, I'll do that. If they make the effort and they show initiative and they're proactive in how they obey you, man, you respond to that totally different. You're open to that. But if you have to make them obey, it's a long road back. Are you with me? I mean, look at A-Rod this week. Had he obeyed early on on his own, He wouldn't have had to go through these interviews and the humiliation that came forcefully. Are you with me? 
I tend to think humbling yourself is just finding a posture of obedience as quick as possible. When we do that, then God brings us to places of honor. What I might call second chance opportunities. In fact, you could probably easily um, replace the words humility and honor with these words. Watch this. We said last week, humility is the doorway to honor. I think you could say obedience is the doorway to opportunity. I mean, they're very synonymous. And God sees in us a humble heart when he sees an obedient life. And yes, you can do it yourself and hear the voice of the Lord and obey, or you can wait for God to make you obey. And by the way, he can. God's not at our disposal. We don't carry God on the string like a puppet. He can make us obey. Just ask the Jonah, are you with me? So I would much rather take the posture of obedience quickly and say, Lord, I'm hearing you and I'm there. As opposed to running and having the Lord press upon me in a divine way and bring me to a place of obedience. Either way, the road back is through humility, which I think is just the, the posture of obedience. In fact, Jonah 2.10 lays out for us this place of honor that Jonah's obedience brought him to. Yes, Granted, his obedience, I'll use the word forced in some way, it was brought about by God. But look at Jonah 2.10. Here's his greatest place of honor. And you're going to be shocked that, that I would select this as his place of honor because you're saying, Todd, there's no way that a, a journey through well vomit is honoring. But let me explain. If an honor, if God's honor, if the, if the fence post of honor, shall we say, is a place we could never get to on our own. I can think of this place fits that perfectly. Jonah had no reason to be on dry land, did he? But God allowed that fish to spit him up. God had no reason, excuse me, Jonah had no real reason to be in the fish. But God sent it along, didn't he, while he was in the Mediterranean. Here's what I'm saying, guys. Jonah 2.10 is a... It's strictly a verse that God brought about in his providence. It's a fence post for Jonah. He had no reason to be there other than God's sovereign providence. He was saying to himself, I didn't get here by myself. Look at the verse with me. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. That's an awesome place of honor. Was it messy? Sure. Was it humbling? By all means. But he finally had a second chance. He was staring at Nineveh, where he should have been looking to begin with. He finally was in a place where he could obey the Lord. That's the honor of a lifetime, to obey God. And here was Jonah's fence post. Here the turtle Jonah, shall we say, is looking at an opportunity he could never have brought about by himself. What an honor to finally obey the Lord and do what he said he would do. Now, some folks see Jonah 2.10 in a disgusting way, and they reference Revelation chapter 3, where it says that those who are neither cold nor hot, but they're lukewarm, the Lord will vomit them out of his mouth. And they seem to, re- to kind of make synonymous the word vomit in Jonah 2.10, and then Revelation 3, I believe it is, where they have the same word. I don't see that at all. I see this as simply a work of the Lord to say, Jonah, you've shown me a spirit of humility. You're willing now to obey I'm going to give you another opportunity, a second chance. And so fish proceed to vomit. And out comes Jonah on the dry land. But what an opportunity. Can I make a simple application here before I head in another direction? 
Sometimes your best opportunities, sometimes your fence posts will be after messy situations. You'll come through a terrible, uh, maybe a, a relationship that was about to go south. Perhaps your own marriage. But God stepped in and restored it, reconciled you to it. And so you're now looking at a brand new opportunity to, to bring God great glory through your marriage. But prior to that, it was, it was miserable. It was messy. What a great testimony you can say to people. You know what? Before God, this is about the end of us. But now, with God, He's humbled us and He's brought us through all glory to God. Are you with me? Sometimes the messy situations are, are what precedes the honor God will bring us. I want to encourage you. If you're in a mess right now, don't dismiss obedience as something you can't do. It may be the very thing God's looking for to place you on that fence post where he says, look what I've done in your life. Now, let me expand on that a little bit about what it means to obey. Because I think Jonah 2.10, a verse of honor for Jonah, a fence post in his life, a place he could never have gotten to on his own, is preceded by two very important things he talks about in verse 9. And I want you to stay with me because I'm going to make this somewhat general and simple, but I don't want you to miss it because of its simplicity. I think Jonah 2.10 follows two very simple types of obedience that Jonah talks about in verse 9. So with your eyes and your pen handy, let me show you two general types of obedience that are mentioned in verse 9. Because when we obey the Lord, remember, that's, that's the humbling that we're looking for. That's how to humble yourself. Or you can have God bring it upon you and He can make you obey. Either way, obedience is the actual visible way that humility looks. And here's what Jonah says. Here's two ways that we obey. And when God sees those, I think He then activates a Jonah 2.10 in our life. Look at Jonah 2.9. Here's the first area of obedience that I think we've got to be willing to address in our life. Jonah 2.9 says this. He talks about how he, he has a song of thanksgiving. He will sacrifice to God. He says, what I have vowed, I will make good. In those two simple phrases, Jonah talks about his desire to obey by serving. In other words, keeping his commitment to do what God has asked him to do. He's not going to bail or quit, which he did in chapter 1, didn't he? He said, hey, God, I'm done with being a prophet. I'm out of here. I'm running. But now in the, in the belly of this fish, he says, God... I will keep my vow. I will make good on what I said I would do. You've called me to be a prophet. I'll make good on that. I will serve you. Can I say to you that obeying the Lord by serving is one of the ways that, that, that we show God we're ready for the honor that He wants to bestow upon us. You know why? Because in serving the Lord and in serving others, we show God that, that we're willing not to live selfishly. You see... Serving is really a selfless lifestyle. It's what Jesus modeled. Look at this verse in Mark chapter 10. Just kind of write this reference down. Here's what the writer said about our Savior in Mark 10. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, watch this, but to serve. And then he says this phrase, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark connected serving with giving something for other people. In fact, you can't serve unless there's an object, and the object of serving is other people. You can't serve yourself. That's just selfishness. But when other people are the recipient of our service, then that's serving. And in Jesus Christ's life, 
We were the recipients of His service. He died for us. We benefit. Are you with me? And in fact, it's not only the model of our Savior, it's the mandate for every believer. John 13, verses 14 and 15. On the heels of Christ washing the feet of the disciples, He says this, Now, I have washed your feet so that you can follow my example. As I have done to you, do this to each other. It is a viable and legitimate expectation in the body of Christ. Watch this phrase. To assume that we will serve one another. It is dysfunctional and unlike the family. When I speak of the family, the spiritual family is unlike family of God, to, to be self-motivated and have self-interest. That's not characteristic of true believers. It wasn't of our Lord, and it's not of His real followers. You see, serving, obeying the Lord by serving, is indicative that we really know Jesus. That's how one of the ways we can obey. And when we obey, when we humble ourselves and serve other people, I think God sees that like He did with Jonah. He said, okay, Jonah, now you're ready to obey by serving. You're going to look towards Nineveh and make them a recipient of your actions. Okay, that's what I've been waiting on. Now, if you're wondering what serving is, well, Todd, how do you define serving? I mean, there's a lot of ways to serve. How would you define it succinctly? How would you put it into words that maybe are easy to kind of grab onto? Let me just give you a very simple definition of serving. Serving is utilizing who you are and what you have for someone else. I mean, it's really quite basic, isn't it? Now, this includes giftedness. It may include your resources. It may include your time. There's a lot of things contained within this. But here's the bottom line. You serve God when you invest either who you are or what you have for the sake of someone else. So the question to ask is this. To what extent, listen very carefully, First Family. To what extent do others fit into your life? If others have no place in your life, if your existence is pretty full already with you, if there's no room on your plate for anybody else, can I say to you, you are not serving the Lord nor His people, but rather living a very consumer-oriented lifestyle. There's no wonder that God will continue probably to press upon you and bring you to places of humility. He's looking for you to obey Him by serving and one of the ways we find out if we're serving is to what extent are others involved in my life. Can I call upon you this week to obey the Lord by serving Him? How do I do that, Todd? You serve His kids. You make room on your plate for other people. That's what it means to serve the Lord. Say, Todd, that's asking a lot. I'm not sure I have that kind of strength. Where do I draw the strength to serve other people? I think the next phrase in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 tells us where. I think these are closely connected phrases. Look at Jonah 2, 9, the last phrase. We read it earlier. It's, Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. Now, if I can, just go back and place myself in Jonah's shoes. Here he is saying, God, I'll keep my vow to you. I will serve you and I going to Nineveh. I'll be your spokesman. I'll make good on what I said. And I think his mind may go back to the fact that, hey, I didn't deserve it. Uh, the moment of salvation, and you rescued me, and so God, I'll serve you by making sure other folks have that same opportunity. There is a definite biblical connection between the fact that God saves and then calls us to serve. The greatest motivation for serving the Lord comes from the fact that He has saved you. And 
the quickest way to dry up in serving is to divorce the concept of serving from the fact that God has saved you. You want to find out what burnout's like? Then try to serve in the power of the flesh. But you want to find out what it's like to be honored in the lives of other people letting God use you? Then every day start it at the cross and say, God, you just saved me. I don't have any reason to really have any significance or impact, but you rescued my soul from hell and saved me. Only you can provide that. So God, use me today. And that's the attitude that doesn't burn out. That's the attitude instead that God can use. And that's what Jonah had. He saw a connection between the fact that salvation comes from the Lord and he was called to serve. You see, we have to obey by serving. But here's the second part of obedience I want to bring your attention to. We are called to obey by believing. Believing the fact that salvation comes from the Lord. That's the, the real root motivation for serving. Now, these five words, salvation comes from the Lord, are pretty awesome. They're just packed with meaning, okay? In fact, just one side note here. The word salvation in the Hebrew is the word Yeshua. It became the New Testament word for Jesus. Now, do I think that Jonah was referencing Jesus? Probably not physically. But I do think he was prophetically. I think probably in Jonah's mind, he's thinking about this great fish that swam along and caught him up and saved him. But it's interesting that prophetically, later to come, there is a permanent vehicle of grace. And it's not a fish, is it? It's the Son of God. In fact, John says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Jonah, in a, in a very unique way, prophesies about who would really be our salvation. Who is it? It's Yeshua. It's Jesus. He's the only way to be saved. And the Lord calls upon all people everywhere to believe that. Let me say that again, okay? The Lord calls upon all people everywhere to believe the truth about Jesus. That's how we're saved. Now, this whole idea of being saved is, in some churches and circles, looked at as like the basics of what it means to be a Christian. It's like, well, you get saved and you move on past that. Can I say to you something and admit to you a very transparent uh, uh, conviction I hold? There is nothing deeper or more um, astounding than the work of salvation. In fact, I have yet to get over the fact that God saved me. Because you know what? I did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. I mean, salvation is the ultimate fence post. I, I, I didn't, like, decide to follow God. I didn't wake up and say, you know, God, if you've got time, I'd like to have a chat. I was spiritually dead. Let me say that, say that again. I was spiritually dead. I wasn't sleeping or napping. I was what? Dead. So were you. So the last time I checked, dead people don't do anything. They don't wake up and see what time it is. They don't check and see how their financial bank accounts are and then say, well, I ought to do something about it. When you're dead, you're toast. God chose to move upon the heart of a 14-year-old boy and bring me to a place where he quickened my heart, caused me to believe, caused me to respond to him. I believed and God saved me. I am more and more, the older I get, astounded by all that goes into the salvation of a person. It's where, it's, it's where I just love to focus. In fact, I've understood that there are about ten things that happen when someone is saved. Now, I'm not going to go over all ten, so just relax. I can see you right there and say, oh my goodness, ten more things. Just relax. There are about ten things that happen in the salvation of someone. All the way from election 
and the general call, the effectual call, all the way to the end, which is what we call glorification. Now, I won't go into all those, but I do want to show you four of those things that happen because I want you to also join me in this place of uh, on-purpose confusion in a good way. You're like, man, how does God do all that? There's, there's four things that happen when you get saved at, uh, within the ten. And these things happen simultaneously in a millisecond. Now, if I were to try to, if you were to try to see this uh, from a human angle, you wouldn't be able to divide it up. You, it's impossible to say, when do these things occur? But if you were to take salvation and put it under a microscope with all the scriptures around it, this is kind of the order it happens. Now, I'm going to walk you through the order of four things that happen in about a millisecond. I don't know how fast that is, but it's way sooner than I can even talk, okay? But let me show you how awesome our God is, how salvation only comes from Him. At some point, when the call goes out and the person hears the gospel, regeneration occurs. The Bible talks about how the Spirit quickens, is the King James word, or He makes alive the heart of someone. Then that person realizes suddenly that they're lost, that they have no way to be saved apart from Jesus. So they call out and ask to be saved. That's called conversion. Conversion is simply a a battery. It's a positive and a negative. It's when you say, I'm lost. That's the negative. It's the bad news. But I can be saved through the gospel. That's the good news. So you realize you need to be saved. God regenerates your heart. He gives you the faith to even call out to him. That's what Ephesians 2 says, isn't it? For by grace are you saved through faith. And even that's not of yourselves. I've heard folks say, you know what? Now I had the faith to believe. No, you didn't. You utilized the faith God gave you to believe. He regenerated your heart when you were dead. You saw it as a chance to respond, so you did, and that was called conversion. The minute God heard you say, I believe, I believe you, Jesus, I embrace the gospel as the only way, then God does this. He justifies you. What that means is he declares you legally uh, righteous. Now, that's hard to imagine that anybody in this room is righteous. Are you with me? You need to be with me on that one, okay? Ain't nobody righteous in this room. But you can be considered righteous because when you declare God, I believe in you through Jesus. Guess how he sees you? He looks at you not through, your, through you, but he looks at you through Jesus. See, Jesus and the cross get in the way. And God looks at you and he's like, man, Chad, it looks like you've never sinned because I'm looking at you through Jesus. That's justification. And then suddenly when he sees you through Jesus, he says, well, good night, Chad. If you're justified, you can get in the family. And he adopts you and he places you in his family. Now, that's just four of ten things that occur when people get saved. And yet, that happens so quickly that it's hard to even dissect it. I just know from Scripture, I can give you the Scriptures for these, that's kind of how it occurs. Isn't God awesome? Isn't it astounding? All that He does on our behalf. I mean, talk about a fence post. Talk about, say, amen, I didn't get here alone. That's salvation. And to anyone in this room this morning, who knows your heart right now is being quickened or made alive by the Spirit of God. You're sensing that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm lost forever. I'll never, I'll, I'll never have any hope for heaven. And I say to you, don't write that off as some nice song with a cool guitar and some guy speaking. It's probably the Spirit of God calling you to believe in the gospel as the only way to be saved. So what would you taught if it were you? I would say, Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ and the truth about him. I believe he was who he says he was. He did what he said he did. Save me, God. You know what God will do? He'll save you. He will justify you. He'll look at you through Jesus and the cross and he'll say, you're forgiven. Then he'll say, oh, by the way, welcome to the family, son. Welcome to the family, daughter. In a word, that salvation. Where does it come from? From Jesus. 
He's the only one who can save. You see, that's why I believe the more we understand about salvation and the gospel, the deeper our church grows. There's no way you can be a gospel-centered church. There's no way you can understand really what God does in saving someone and think, well, that's just for the babies. That's, that's basic. I'm moving on. How do you ever move on past the cross? It's where everything changes. And God calls everyone to obey Him by believing the truth about Jesus because that's the only place salvation's found. Have you taken that step of obedience and believed the truth about Jesus. I hope you have. If not, maybe even while I was speaking earlier, you said, Todd, I, I'm going to call it to God to save me right now. Then just right now, in the sanctuary of your heart, say, Lord, save me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, that He's your Son. Forgive me of my sin based on the cross. I know you rose again. and I believe God will hear your prayer and the sincerity of your heart based on the truth of His Word. And He will save you salvation has a name amen and it's jesus christ so here's two aspects to obedience that jonah references in this simple verse that i think led to this place of honor this vomiting experience of the fish that really was his second chance a whole new opportunity jonah said lord i i will obey by serving and i'm going to obey by believing now by the way those are connected we talked about it earlier. Can I just review quickly for you? Just understand something. He saves, I serve. This verse is not some misfit. This isn't some phrases that Jonah compiled. There's a reason they're together. And Jonah understood something very clearly. Lord, you saved me. Only you could do that. And now you're giving me a chance to serve. Only you can do that. See, there's the honor, first family. There's the honor that we're talking about. It's an opportunity, a second chance, a brand new opportunity that God has given you to serve Him because you have believed Him. That's what He does here. There's another example of this in Thessalonians. Could you turn over there real briefly? Let me show you a New Testament group of people who did the very same thing Jonah did. If you want to look behind me on the screen, I have the verse here as well. But here's a verse about a group of believers in Thessalonica who were lost and ignoring the Lord, running away, and their road back to God is very similar, but it's stated in even more succinct fashion than the 48 verses of Jonah. Look what uh, Paul writes about these believers. It's in verse 9. He says, They tell, and the word they there speaks of other believers, is their reputation and testimony. He says, They tell how you turn to God from idols. There's the believing part, right? They just obeyed the Lord and said, we believe. We're not going to cling to worthless idols. And then it says here, they turned so that they could serve the living and true God. They began to serve. In a nutshell, the life of a believer is one where you believe, you obey that call to believe, and then you obey the call to serve. That's what believers do. And in this chapter, these believers in Thessalonica were afforded the opportunity that their testimony rang out in the province around them, Macedonia, Achaia, and their testimony was so strong, their witness so vibrant, that it couldn't be even held within their own community. And they didn't have email then or newspapers per se. It was all word of mouth and the foot uh, method. Word just spread, you know, physically. And yet people in various provinces around them were hearing about the awesome testimony of these believers. What an honor that was. Amen. You see, guys, God is looking for obedient people so he can give you opportunities 
That's the honor we're waiting on. He's looking for saved people who will serve him. When that is the posture of our life, God will give you fence post opportunities. Times when you say, wow, how did I end up here? Well, man, God, I can't believe I had this opportunity. You know why? Because all along the way you found a posture of obedience as quickly as possible. Let's pray for a second.